Welcome to the Hex Knight Podcast. I'm David. And I am Ivan. And tonight we're gonna talk about guns. Um, so this um, is a little bit of a, like a follow-up episode, I guess, uh, since mm. we had an episode talking about like medieval weaponry and chopping dudes up. Um, so, you know, talking about uh, ways of killing people in a civilized manner at a distance. Um <laughs> Seemed like the obvious, uh, obvious follow-up, and that was an episode that I think uh, caught a few people's attention. I think our viewers mm-hmm. ticked up a little bit after that. Um. <clears throat> so, I hate to cut into the conversation, um, but I just wanted to take a moment to do some obligatory promotion that we always forget to do. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Ivan has been able to uh, partner with uh, Modifius, an English tabletop gaming publisher, to put out a hard copy of one of his flagship games. This will be Five Parsecs, third edition. Now, I'm sure a lot of our loyal listeners uh, know about this already, and probably have come from Nordic Weasel Games, like the Discord group, too. Uh, we also have t-shirts that you can check out at Store Frontier. Uh, we have uh, links in the description of the episode, so if you want to check this stuff out, we'd really appreciate it. And now we'll uh, get back to our regularly scheduled program. So to kind of restate, I guess, the objective here, this isn't like a historical dissertation. This is based on, you know, stuff we've read uh, sometimes in passing. Um, You know, I've spent a lot of time reading on various historical firearms in the context of doing game design and stuff. But in the end, it's not, you know, we aren't writing historical papers or anything. Yeah, Uh, we aren't accredited and this isn't like like defined scholarship that's going to be presented to the world as as fact (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh we obviously try to be as accurate as possible um and to but the goal here is to give a sort of working knowledge of what like different guns and firearms like what the basis is at different periods in time and how just to kind of like help envision understand these things because i think a lot of times that can like hold people back from doing a game that's set in like you know, the Wild West or the Civil War or something. It's, they don't really know, like, how do these things work? Right. Um, so it's really just, like, give that, like, baseline knowledge, and then you can go, like, get, you know, like, gun nerds write many big, heavy books. Uh, there's lots of documentation out there. Um, yeah, sure. And for me, like, I'm all about just expanding on possibilities and opportunities to do new and unique things with firearms and gaming situations. Yeah. And, you know, you can build things into your game. You know, if you decide you want to create your fantasy world, but you want to have like more of a technological edge to it, then it helps to know kind of where to put things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you're working in in a pretty specific setting or want to make it more historical, of course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so what we're going to do, I think, is just kind of like go through the ages, uh, the history of firearms in, uh, and this will probably be most in a military context, because that tends to be what's best mm-hmm. documented, what's easiest to find information on. Uh, really stretches, in Europe, it stretches for 
you know, a good 600 years, but that's not really like where things start, right? Not even close. The, the Chinese were the first, of course, to work with black powder. We have extensive documentation of them using, quote, rockets, which were most likely just giant fireworks used to scare the living heck mm-hmm. out of opponents. I'd imagine that would be pretty effective against, like, horses, you know? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> flashing things. Like, I've seen horses, like, freak out at a plastic bag. So things exploding <laughs> around them would no doubt be, uh, even for a trained horse, that would be would be pretty challenging. Yeah, most definitely. And so as they develop that, we get to our first documentation of what they call a, what you could call, like, a, a hand cannon mm-hmm. or, or something that's going to fire material out of the front of it uh, expelled by by a black powder and so we've got a rocks rock sculpture found in the uh, oh let's see in china the uh, dazu rock carvings they're dated 1128 wow. thereabouts yeah and so in this uh in these carvings we have a conceptual illustration of cannon like firearms exists around the 12th century we have hmm. so are see. these portable or are they like on like a mount or how are they uh they're portable so, you know, so like, uh, kind of lug it under the arm like uh... i'm sure they had like a strap and they're just hanging hanging it like alongside their backpack mm-hmm. like the first documentation that at least what i'm reading here indicates that they're they had a fire emitting lance documented in 1259. Yeah, so that's very early. Um, you know, when we talk about firearms in Europe, we're talking about like late 1400s. So we're like a good almost 300 years um, before that. Yeah, most definitely. But you got to think there are like major risks involved in like designing a firearm mm-hmm. because essentially you're you're holding a bomb and you're that's supposed <laughs> to like... the explosion goes only one way right exactly right so, um also yeah that would be almost as intimidating for the shooter as it would for whoever's on the receiving end yeah yeah um, especially i couldn't imagine being the first people to design devices like this <laughs> that's why i wonder if um you know obviously we don't know like the process that led to this, you know, like by the time mm-hmm. something is being built and made in like workshops and issued out to troops, there's been, you know, all sorts of experiments leading up to that. Right. It would be interesting to know what they, those would have looked like, you know, they're just um, lost to, to time. It's not like they, I'm sure they were just like servants of a Lord. You know? Yeah. You know, like here, hold this thing and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> or, or you know, they were like contraptions that were built, and you set them off, and then once one of them worked and didn't blow up, then we'll try and like make this, and we'll send some some dudes out to shoot a deer or something. Yeah, um, yeah. So the thing that is probably worth noting with because uh, by the time we get something resembling like a portable firearm on European battlefields, it's very similar to that. Like it's kind of just like a tube you carry and you set it off. Like you know, there's a touch hole at the end, kind of like a cannon. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it goes boom, and like a chunk of lead or rock or whatever gets shot towards a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the things to note, I think, is that, one, these are, uh, accuracy is not really a thing. Um, mm-hmm. In order for, you know, like, 
obviously whatever you're shooting, like your shot, uh, even if it's mm-hmm. perfectly round, it has to be able to fit down the barrel, which means it has to be smaller than the barrel. Right. Uh, which means when it's shot, it will essentially bounce. Like it'll come out, you know. Yeah, you have recoil. Yeah, well, and you have uh, what's specifically called windage, basically like mm. because the ball doesn't fit snugly in the barrel, it's not going to come out like flying straight ahead, essentially. It's going to have a little bit of spin to it. Mm-hmm. So wherever you're aiming is more like a a, <laughs> a uh, encouraging guideline for where the shot is actually going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus like early gunpowder, and I'm perfectly willing to believe Chinese powder was probably like in better condition because they had more of a an industry for this thing um, mm-hmm. than early European powder. Uh, but it, it was off like pretty, pretty rough stuff. Uh, it might not burn proper. It might, you know, uh, it might kind of fizzle out um, or, you know, you didn't pack it densely enough and it just burns out instead of exploding. Or mm-hmm. So you would have a lot of like misfires and, you know, uh, plus weapons that would probably like crack under the stress of repeated firings. Right, right. And then, yeah, that would be really frightening and difficult to manage, too. Like, especially if you're dealing with, uh, you're in mid-battle, you've got, like, knights bearing down on you, and you're, you're at, <laughs> You gotta like, get this thing to, uh, to reload, right? Or, or, you know, you have to fire, and it's not, and you jam the stuff in, you mm-hmm. light it, and it blows up on you. Like, right, exactly. That's lose lose because either you're <laughs> gonna get ridden down, or or you. Yeah, you just lost an eye up. or something. Yeah, right. or or both. You're you're missing like half your face and some like French jerk is stabbing you with a sword now. Yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> so um, I guess like with these like a quick aside. So mm-hmm. so book the history of song indicates that it was made from a large bamboo tube. And they stuffed a wad of, like, pellets, which could be stone mm-hmm. or some form of, like, iron or whatever, maybe lead. Yeah, it could like be that. pretty much That's anything, it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And so... So it could almost be, uh, like, a shotgun kind of thing, you know, just like... Uh, yeah, it seems like that's how they worked. Uh, which would make up for the lack of, like, accuracy, you know, if you're mm-hmm. setting this, like, fistful of, like pellets downrange yeah and i guess the first documentation of one of these types of devices came to europe in 1327 hmm. and then of course you have like the delay in people like figuring out how to make it locally figuring out how to make like you know fairly dependable powder and things like that yeah and i guess they became pretty widespread in france by 13 i mean relatively mm-hmm I wonder, like, who is actually able to use those. And then if you only have a couple of them on a battlefield and you have hundreds or thousands of people, like, they're not really going to make much difference. Yeah, um, from the little, and I'm not a medievalist at all, uh, mm-hmm. but I have read up on a lot of battles of the Hundred Years' War, which is, of course, mm-hmm. the prolonged soccer engagement of the uh, the British <laughs> and the, or the English and the French right. at the time. Um, and it seems like cannon uh show up in a number um generally sooner than like portable firearms like it seems mm-hmm. for a long time the view is still that like crossbowmen can do whatever the sort of primitive handguns can do just as well sure. uh but cannon can bowl down you know like if you shoot if you have a block of advancing infantry and you shoot a cannon and so you just gotta like mow down a hole in their ranks 
Yeah. yeah. And of course, uh, cannon lets you batter down like uh, fortress walls pretty effectively. Although it's also a lot of descriptions of uh, artillery use, like very early artillery use, comes mm-hmm. down to like, you know, the king gets all of his guns out that are very expensive and they all shoot and it's very impressive. And then they realize nothing whatsoever happened on the other end because all the shots went wide or... Sure. <laughs> and sure. then they put that stuff away and everyone like gets out their swords and spears and goes like murder each other <laughs> right and so, they kind of move forward unless you had something else to say about this kind of era yeah no I think um, early firearms is very much outside of like siege warfare I think it's very much a case of like uh, future promise as opposed to necessarily like um actual payoff at the time right. not unless you had like some sort of lo- essentially like large-scale industry for the era uh, that you can really like take advantage of this mm-hmm. um so uh, it sounded like you were leading into something so why don't you go ahead yeah so i think like based off my reading things really start to change in the 15th century mm-hmm. so like uh yeah, wall guns uh, really start showing up. So why don't you give a little bit of a, uh, since that's a term I think people aren't going to be familiar with. Right, 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 right. And to be frank. So I, I think also. Totally. Uh, <laughs> if you want to start in, you might know more off yeah, the top um, of your head. I was just going to make a little bit of a disclaimer here because mm-hmm. with firearms, a lot of the terms that the meaning they have today is not necessarily the meaning they've had for our time. Like we've, we're used to the idea of a musket meaning like a, you know, a normal infantry man's like smooth or firearm and a rifle is, you know, like these words all have specific meanings, but historically that hasn't necessarily been the case. Like the word musket used to mean like a lighter and sh- I might be messing it up. It's either a lighter or a heavier version of like the standard like harquebus that a soldier would use. But then over time, whatever version it was, that became the norm. So the name stuck around, just became applied to all. So when we're using a lot of these terms, we're kind of just using the term as it exists now and as it's understood now, which may not have been how they were referred to at the time. Uh, just the stuff can be confusing if you try to read like period text and they're referring to you know, musket or harquebus or these things mm-hmm. meaning something very specific that we don't tend to mean nowadays. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. Uh, I think muskets were lighter, if yeah. I read things correctly. Yeah, that may uh, well be the case, because uh, at some point that, that became the norm, just from, like, you know, weapons becoming portable. Mm-hmm. Um, the first kind of, like, real, I would say, like, major evolution... Um, in firearms is the uh, matchlock essentially because mm. uh, the big issue with like the sort of like tube gun or like hand cannon mm-hmm. um, is that it's very you can't really like aim it uh, a lot of times it's like held <laughs> up the arm or you have to like you know touch like a burning piece of string to it just set it off um, so that's not really like practical and it means that you are very you have to essentially get your dudes lined up get them reloaded and fired like on the moment you need them they can't like advance forward with like ready weapons right uh so the matchlock was essentially like an answer to that and like there's a thousand complicated version of this but at the most basic you have when you pull the trigger a little like claw thing sweeps forward and to that you attach a 
length of match, which is specially treated like rope, essentially, that burns, mm. but it burns slowly. And the match touches um, a little hole that sets off a gunpowder charge inside the gun, and the gun goes boom. Mm -hmm. So now you can load your gun, you can attach your match carefully, um, <laughs> you can aim it at a target, you can move around, you can advance on the battlefield, and when you pull the trigger, gun goes boom. So now you have the ability to actually kind of be ready. If you're expecting battle, you can have everyone load up and stand, you know, stand alert. Um, they can aim their weapons, uh, although, you know, most of these weapons weren't, like, they didn't have really, like, sights, like, mm -hmm. you would understand them. Uh, but you could still, like, aim reasonably well. You could fire on command, um, and it was a bit more reliable in the sense, compared to what people used to. Sure. Um, well, of course, and part of that process would also be developing the contours so that people could actually use specific techniques to try to start to improve their aim. Oh, absolutely. Uh, a big thing that often comes up in like musket versus longbow debates is the idea that firearms are a weapon that is suitable for like untrained militia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that might be the case today because we're understanding in the context of modern rifles. Right. Uh, but that is absolutely not the case for a weapon like that. Like loading drill, like, you know, grabbing, you know, your little paper bag of powder, pouring it in, shouldering the weapon, like all of those steps have to be drilled. Right. So like... While you could definitely churn out, like, common people, you know, the Japanese were huge embracers of the matchlock. Mm -hmm. um, and they would absolutely issue them, like, to a huge amount of, you know, just, like, peasant soldiers, essentially, because that was effective. But they were still, mm -hmm. like, drilled. They were trained in what they were doing. Like, if you have a bunch of people with, like, think about it. If you have, like, a bandolier with, like, paper pouches of gunpowder, like, across your chest, and you're, like you don't know what you're doing, you're waving around like a burning piece of string, that's going to go poorly. Like, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're not long for this world. Um, but actually, matchlocks, uh, while they show up in Europe, sort of uh, early 1400s, uh, the Ottomans were one of the early adopters of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's sort of like spread throughout. Uh, and matchlocks stick around like a long time. Like the English Civil War in the 1600s uh, was still fought primarily with matchlocks. Uh, the Thirty Years' War was fought primarily with that type of weapon. They were around for like a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, so by modern standards, they're obviously like horrendously inaccurate. They don't have any rifling. You have the windage, so the ball kind of bounces. Uh, calibers were very often not standardized. Mm -hmm. uh, they foul, you know, from black powder burns like very messily, so they leave residue. Uh, they have low reliability. Um, and of course, like if it's raining, uh, they're not very effective. Um, you know, there's a lot of limitations to these weapons, but they were still able to give like pretty accurate fire out to, you know, surprisingly long ranges. If you want to hit mm -hmm. something, you probably got to be within like 50 yards or so. But if you're shooting at like a block of men, um, but of course, it's still a dramatic change to to prior technologies. Mm -hmm. And especially what it gives you is the ability to punch your armor plate. Like armor has to be extremely thick to stand up to even like pretty crabby firearms. Sure. Um, so you would start to get uh, what was called proofed armor, which was armor that had been shot with a pistol or even a musket. And uh, the term proof mark actually originates from, like, the mark that the shot would leave on, like, a chest plate. So if you wow. saw that it had that dent in it, it was proofed. It's scary stuff, man. Like, <laughs> I know. Even if your armor is proofed, like, oh, here we are. 
like riding up to a, a castle and <laughs> they've got wall guns, which they're heavier. Yeah. So the they will just, yeah, there's not apparel. really any like any armor you can you can do against that. Yeah, they're like a a one inch barrel. Mm. Like a yeah. one caliber round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the equivalent. I mean, that's 25 millimeter. That's like anti-tank rifle territory from like World War Two. That's a big ball. And it's like yeah. as relatively slow moving, like a ball of lead that'll deform when it hits you. Like, it's terrifying. They would just F you up. Oh, it would knock you off. I would imagine it would still knock you off your horse, even if it didn't pierce the armor. Yeah, I don't think there's any chance like it's not going through unless it's like a mm. real like glancing deflecting shot. Um, right. But yeah, so the matchlock and the associate like artillery that comes with it, that's really like where a firearm become like the norm. And it's one of those mm. things like every culture that comes into contact with this kind of warfare ends up adopting it. Like Native Americans in the col- in the American colonies they get their hands on as many firearms as they can, um, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the Middle East. Um, I know you have uh, stuff you want to talk about with Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Japanese adopt them en masse. It's funny because we always think of samurais like fighting with swords and bows. And by like by the height of the samurai era, the main army was like a bunch of peasant dudes with, you know, like a Kurosawa movie style, um, mm-hmm. letting rip with uh, with musket fire. That's, I mean, it all comes down to logistics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and you, it's... You want to have these romantic stories about brave warriors... Uh, <laughs> yeah. ...riding in. <laughs> right, you know. And I mean, that, that was still a thing. I know we talked about this earlier, uh, before we recorded. Um, you have this, like, really bizarre era of time where you have, like, infantry with, like, muskets, like, slugging it out what is essentially, like, proto-modern warfare... Mm-hmm. You have, like, cavalry with, like, chest plates and swords and, like, charge in. You have pikemen with, like, spears and armor. All kind of, like, coexisting. You have, you know, like, in the late, like, 1500s and, like, f- the fighting in, like, Belgium and stuff. You still have, like, Englishmen with bows, like, <laughs> facing off against, like, French harquebuses and stuff. So it's just, like... everyone has got what? Like, oh, yeah, chop, sure. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> yeah, like, just bring whatever you got. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, there's a funny moment from a, a memoir of a French captain uh, where he's talking to one of his friends, and his friend is asking why the British are so brave, or the English, why they're so brave, because they always like come right up close to them to fight. And he mm-hmm. says that, well, it's not because they're that brave, it's because their bows don't have the same range that our guns do, so they mm-hmm. have to come closer to fight. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so that's really like the birth of modern warfare, right? Like you get like the, you know, like the pagan shot as wargamers like to call it. Right. Um, so the problems with the matchlock, of course, is um, it's still like quite unreliable. It has a high malfunction rate. Uh, and the burning match, while you can carry it around for a while, it's still burning down. Like you can't put a sentry, you know, to stand guard. Also, like matchlocks are kind of dubious if you're like an engineer or something or like artillery. Oh man! You sure. really don't want burning string around. Um, right. There's a different, <laughs> there's a different kind of gun called a wheel lock, and these are like f- basically like steampunk contraptions because you use like a spinning wheel mechanism to like generate sparks, which sets off the powder. Mm-hmm. So they're they are absolutely mental. Like everyone should go look up like how wheel locks work. They're really cool. They all look cool. They look very cinematic. Uh, it's the shower of sparks when they shoot. Um, they were very expensive, and they were kind of like finicky mechanisms. It's almost like an early like, sure. clock mechanism. Um, like unreliable. 
Yeah, like, I guess some of the problem was because metal springs were really bad at the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, you could wind up the gun so it's ready to shoot, but if you carry it, like, wound up for too long, it would weaken the springs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were popular, like, they're expensive, so they were popular with, like, you know, rich people, but they were also popular with cavalry weapons because they could be carried and fired, like, from horseback pretty readily. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never, like, they were just too finicky, too vulnerable to being bludgeoned around, too difficult to repair. Like, a matchlock is so robust that um, some military writers at the time advocated that musketeers didn't need to carry swords. They could just turn the gun around and club the, the dude to death. Jeez. <laughs> and that wouldn't really, like, because it's just, like, a staunch, like, wooden tube with maybe a bit of a barrel or a mm-hmm. grip on it. Right. Uh, but wheel locks were, like, quite finicky, so they never, like... They never really, like, uh, became a thing. But if you're, like, an siege engineer, like, you were standing guard at, like, the artillery train or something like that, you might have had that. Mm -hmm. Um, The other big issue of the era is that nobody had figured out a solution to the bayonet yet, uh, which meant that in order to fight cavalry, you still needed, like, dudes with spears around. That's why we call it pike and shot. So you'd have, like, half the army, like, pikemen with, like, helmets and chest plates and spears, and you would have the other half, you know, uh, soldiers with muskets, and they would kind of cooperate in some, like, super complicated way. Mm -hmm. So when the cavalry attacked, the musketeers would, like, shoot the shots, and they would, like, retreat into the pike block, and then they would fend off the horse and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, So the solution to that was initially what's called a plug bayonet, which essentially just is kind of what it sounds like. Like, you take a knife and you jam it into the barrel of your musket. So now you can stab people, but you can't shoot anymore. So it's like <laughs> once you sh- fired off your shots, or it's getting up close and personal, you plug it in, and now you got a short spear. Do what you got to do in that moment, you know. Yeah, I, you know, like, and then you just like plunge in, uh, presumably alongside like your pikemen. But it did yeah. mean that you could have musketeers and kind of convert them to like crabby pikemen. You know, like, they don't have, like, a uh, 12-foot pike or whatever. They probably didn't have armor because it was too expensive to, like, armor all your musketeers and they didn't need it. But at least, like, it gives them kind of, like, that versatility, right? Right. Without having to pay for a sword for all these dudes who are just going to, like, chop firewood with it and uh, mess it up anyway. hmm Yeah. So, um, the big, like, I think when people talk about muskets, um, what they're really talking about isn't the matchlock, though. It's his successor, the flintlock. Of course. Um, you know, if you watch, like, uh, Last of the Mohicans, if you watch the Sharp movies, you're well familiar with what this looks like. Or even, like, uh, The Patriot, which is a terrible movie. Nobody should watch it. <laughs> uh, so the flintlock, essentially, it has the same kind of loading process. You pour, like, powder. Let me walk through what this looks like just so people can kind of conceptualize the amount of work that goes into this. So you are ready to shoot like some Frenchman who has been bothering you with all his revolutionary ideals. So you plant the musket firmly in the ground in front of you. You take your little, probably a paper bag with like a pre-measured amount of powder. Yeah. You tear off the end of it with your teeth, probably getting powder in your mouth. Now you're thirsty. You pour the powder down. Um, you jam down like the piece of paper uh, that becomes essentially the wadding to like help it like fit snugly. Uh, the musket ball goes in, you take your ramrod and, like, ram it down as firm as you can um, so that, you know, you want the powder to be packed as tightly as possible in there. A little bit of powder goes on when you lift it up. There's what's called a priming pan. We put a little bit of powder on. 
Mm -hmm. Then you pull the cock back, and that's not a rude thing. It's just what it's called. It's what's essentially like the equivalent of like the hammer on a modern revolver. Right. Then you take something resembling aim. Um, you pull the trigger. The cock falls forward, and a piece of flint and a piece of steel strike each other, sending sparks. That spark mm -hmm. sets off the powder in the priming pan, which sets off the powder charge you had stamped down, which sends, you know, 12 or 14 millimeter lead ball of death flying in your opponent's direction. Mm -hmm. So it's a laborious process. Like, regular troops were expected to present, like, two shots a minute. Uh, if you were good, uh, you could present three, maybe even four. Mm -hmm. uh, th three shots a minute as a sustained rate was a sign of very well-disciplined troops. Uh, so that's kind of the rate of fire. So if you're thinking like combat rounds in an RPG, which is like five seconds, mm -hmm. you're not shooting that often. Like you're shooting every couple of rounds, right? Mm -hmm. Accuracy is still pretty dubious. It's still a smooth bore. It has no sights. Uh, military right. muskets were often very poorly made and crooked. Uh, but you're firing at like dense blocks of troops. Uh, skirmishers, you know, could aim better and had probably paid more attention to the weapons, but accuracy is a very low at the best of times. Mm -hmm. um, firing the weapon shoots up a massive puff of uh, thick white smoke. Um, and if there's 200 of your best friends doing the same thing, uh, almost every memoir and diary of like Napoleonic soldiers will mention, or American uh, Revolutionary War soldiers will mention that after a few volleys, you just can't see anything. You're shooting at like out into the fog and the smoke. Right. And then suddenly, like, you know, the enemy just comes and emerges out of this dense wall of smoke in front of you. And you have, like, one last volley to break them before they come at you with bayonets, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's confusing. It's, it's difficult. No, exactly. Uh, but it's confusing and difficult uh, fighting. Uh, it's very laborious. Uh, the weapon has massive recoil. Uh, you're perpetually thirsty because the gunpowder is in your mouth. You can just taste it and it's... You know, like, it's just miserable and awful. Um, mm -hmm. But it was still a step up, you know, with a flintlock. You can load up your weapon. You can carry it around to load it up to, you know, with a fair amount of movement. So you right. could send forward, like, sentries or skirmishers that are ready to shoot. Like, a sentry that's, you know, in your camp can have a loaded weapon and carry it around and all night long. Um, and he can carry it around without being seen. Obviously, having a little, like, burning piece of string is a great way of, like, getting spotted in the dark. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but with this, you know, he can be ready to shoot. You can sneak around. Like, it has a lot of um, advantage over the older style. And as soon as they kind of become the – start showing up, they start replacing the older weapons throughout the world. Um, along with its buddy, the socket bayonet, which is basically kind of like – uh, if you ever seen like a modern bayonet, like in a movie, it like clicks in under the barrel. That's basically right. what it is. It fits right. in the socket, which means the weapon can now be fired, and can be loaded if you're kind of gin ginger and careful uh, not to stab your hand when you do it. Yeah, plenty <laughs> <Sure. laughs> of practice. Yeah, uh, that's where that drill comes in. You don't want to mess that up when there's like a giant sword attached to the end of the, your gun. Um, right. But these weapons did allow, like, substantial amounts of firepower to be delivered, you know, by well-drilled troops at close range. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of, once we were talking, like, Napoleonic Wars, Seven Years' Wars, uh, the American Revolution, things like that, that's the kind of weapon that everyone is toting around. Mm -hmm. You can shoot accurate to maybe 50 yards, 40 yards, something like that. Uh, the bullet can right. go a lot further, but you're, that's more ambitious. 
Um, they're still unreliable. They can still misfire. They're not really going to explode on you, but like a lot of times, like a shot will, like the powder will just burn out. You didn't stamp it like tight enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weapon will become fouled and difficult to reload. You'll have to wash out the barrel or just drop it and replace it with a different one. Like I said, you're shooting like two shots a minute, probably three if you're really good and disciplined. Right. Um, so they have a lot of drawbacks, but at the same time, like this will absolutely like ruin your day. It's like a 11 or 12 or 13 millimeter projectile. It's soft lead, so it'll deform when it hits you. If it hits a bone, it's just going to shatter the bone all out of your body. Like you're going to lose that limb. Right. Right. <laughs> there's well, there's no medical technology. A chunk of bone. Yeah. There's no medical technology at the time that can like pick out, you know, like 20 bone splinters from your leg. It's just going to go gangrenous and you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So it's abs- like wounds from these weapons are absolutely horrifying. Um, and again, so, like that limits the need for accuracy, of course. Yeah, uh, in parts, like it's just not with a custom made like, you know, like a sporting musket or like a hunting weapon that was built specifically, like very carefully to be accurate. And mm-hmm. the the ammunition load is packed very carefully and. Like, you could be quite accurate uh, with it, but in a standard situation where you're rushing to do this because you're about to die, and you're using, like, a mass-produced military weapon, yeah, it's not going to be that accurate. But, again, like, you and a hundred of your closest friends from, like, third company, all shooting in the same direction, like, that's a (laughs) lot of uh, angry lead balls going in the other direction. Sure. (laughs) Um, now, I know when we we're talking muskets, uh, you had um, some stuff you wanted to uh, bring up. Yeah. On the other side of the world, you had, I mean, you have the same technologies developing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they didn't have the, I guess, the kind of social and they didn't have republics. They didn't have industrialization. But they still had foundries and steelworks. So they had like the basic technological tools to develop weapons. So in Pakistan specifically, I believe, they had the jazail, mm-hmm. uh, which is a word for a, lo- a simple, low cost uh, flintlock musket that was being uh, developed by the tribes people of the area in like Central Asia in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and it was uh, popular among the Pashtun tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, yeah, they were heavily involved in the uh, First and Second Anglo-Afghan Wars. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like well into the 1800s here. Yeah, yeah. And there, it's interesting, like the, it was a handmade weapon. I, I'm sure that the barrels themselves were mass produced mm-hmm. but again like they could yeah be... the, the barrels almost would have to be right because it's you know it has to be steel yeah yeah and i'm sure either there are like local traders that could get them from china or india or so mm-hmm. you know a more or maybe turkey mm-hmm. so these are but otherwise you know like the stock uh is handmade people believe that they would capture uh, European rifles, uh, especially like broken uh, brown best muskets, apparently, mm-hmm. and take the the flintlock mechanism from that. Oh, to... and then build it into their own. Uh... Exactly. Hmm, exactly. That's uh, interesting. They're heavier weapons. Uh, they're 
the average caliber was uh, 50 to 75. Yeah, that's massive. So yeah. 50 caliber is like a 12 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. And they're uh, 12 to 14 pounds on average. Mm-hmm. And they're in these like really like long, like, um, but you see like photos of them or drawings. Some of them are like almost like as tall as a person, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, you got to think you have guys who are able to, I mean, this, you don't have TV or much going on. So I'm sure they learned to carve when they were kids mm. and there were, you, you develop those skills and it, it's your personal weapon. Right, right, right. And you were able to really put it together yourself. So there were, you know, we get these ornately decorated rifles. I, I mm. think it's interesting that the, the butt tended to have kind of a, a sweeping curve to it that's much different than like the, the standard stock that we yeah which with, like Western in a way is like a very modern kind of uh, you know it's almost like a pistol grip right mm-hmm. whereas if you look at like european like military muskets they barely had anything like that they were kind of like you know that was just not a consideration at all yeah, uh, which I think it is again like that they were just not intended for this like very accurate like individualized firing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it also people believe it, it made it easier to to ride with them and possibly ride and shoot. Mm-hmm. The spray because the rifle was much longer, it could take more the the recoil mm-hmm. itself is a heavier weapon, so that the, the the shooter, the owner of the weapon, didn't have to deal with that quite as much as you would with a musket. Right. Um, they had a much more extensive range, and I would assume to a point, like, the accurate range would be a bit uh, longer, too. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's always the, like, at what range can you, like, hit a man-sized target, like, pretty reliably? versus like at what range can you shoot like a group of men and probably hit one of them right like those are two different things yeah yeah definitely on average apparently the the average like uh english musket was able to fire about 150 yards whereas Mm. the giselle rifles were able to reach like about 270 yards yeah so a good 100 yard advantage especially if your opponents are on foot uh that's you know, by the time they've closed some of that, you've already like reloaded again. That's uh, would be extremely demoralizing. Yeah, yeah. So what would happen? And I mean, you know, Afghanistan is pretty notorious for for its huge, like for its hilly landscape and all the mm-hmm. rocky outcroppings. There are plenty of places for tribesmen to hide. And because right. I mean, the English are marching through their territory. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Pashtuns were pretty notorious. As, for setting up ambushes and just they've like, got the advantage range. Yeah. And just like picking them off like from the mountains or from the top of like a hillside or something. Yep, exactly. So they'd be using the Giselles from like either the top of the cliffs or the bottom of a valley where the British would come over and yeah, they would just start cutting them down bit by bit. Mm. And they were able to actually, they were really successful with this for a while Mm-hmm. Um, until uh, the British figured it. I mean, the issue, of course, for like a tribal group is they aren't going to be, a, they aren't going to have the discipline. They aren't like organized in formation. So yeah, once you get to like close quarter combat, they would be at a, 
at a disadvantage. Very much so. So the Pashtuns would be able to win if they were able to ambush and take advantage of the range of their rifles, whereas if the British were able to draw the Pashtuns out into an open field, mm-hmm. then the, the tables would be completely turned. Right, and of course, you know, the British are probably also more likely to have lake artillery and stuff. Very true. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, so that's a really interesting case. Kind of like the Japanese, like, embrace of the matchlocks, where you see, like, mm-hmm. these local adaptations that become, like, very specific and very suited to, like, a very particular kind of um, environment. You know, that right. is tribesmen uh, who, you know, like, if you're, even if you're not, like, fighting a bunch of, like, Englishmen who are coming over to mess with your stuff... You know, like, if you're, you might only get, like, one shot of picking off, like, a wolf or a coyote or something who's coming for your, for your animals, or, sure. you know, like, in a case like that, like, <laughs> your li- your livelihood and your life kind of depends on this, like, long-range accurate fire in a way that's just not the case for, um, you know, if you're just, like, a Prussian, like, soldier. Sure, sure. So, someone who has just kind of issued this standardized weapon and again that's supposed to spit out this huge wall of flak yeah you know like you're supposed to use it in i mean again there were like accurate infantry weapons in europe mm-hmm. but there are more like you know like you see a lot like uh, british rifles and stuff like that um or you know like the american revolution like the sort of kentucky rifleman stuff were kind of like have become like mythologized a little bit mm-hmm. um you know like those weapons existed but they were also like pretty limited like uh by the end of the revolutionary war like the british have more rifles than the americans do Hmm. um but yeah so that's a really uh really cool like local thing it's so like characterful right you know these like very elaborate and very like uh beautiful looking uh weapons yeah you know there's a different quality to it than these like mass churned out like brown bass or whatever right right so the um Kind of the next step up from the flintlock is essentially, um, like, the quest for greater accuracy obviously was going on, mm. uh, but reliable and rapid firing was really, like, the main thing, you know? Like, if we can uh, get all of... If every time the gun goes boom, uh, a shot does come out, that's, you know, extra firepower gained. Right. <laughs> um, so you get... One of the sort of intermediate steps is what's called the percussion cap, and it's a little, like... Um, capsule essentially that uh, replaces the idea of the priming charge and it contains some sort of like compound like a mercury compound or something hmm. and you place these on the back of the gun you pull back the hammer when you pull the trigger uh, the hammer sets off the percussion cap which then sets off the powder charge so you're still loading through the barrel you're still pouring powder down it's still a smooth bow weapon uh, but it's percussion muskets will start showing up I think around 1830 or so uh, they start kind of popping up everywhere and replacing the flintlocks as just being a more reliable and more consistent ignition system. Mm-hmm. Like the, while you can still have issues with the powder and how it's loaded, it's just because you're removing the powder from one of the two, the priming pane or the internal charge, it improves the reliability quite a bit. Uh, the accuracy isn't any better. Um, and the rate of fire isn't much different either. Uh, but these start showing up, and a lot of times, like, old muskets get, like, converted to these new designs, or as new weapons come in, they just, you know, are replaced with these uh, new versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real kind of changer, the, one of the first, once you get to, like, the middle to late 1800s, everything starts changing really quickly. Right. Uh, so the 
the big problem with rifles up until that point, because rifles have been around since very early. Um, and a rifle in sort of the proper terminology, essentially the inside of the barrel has a groove cut into it. So the bullet fits in that groove and it'll, because it's forced up, it'll spin, right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes out, that spin stabilizes it and keeps it like flying straight. Uh, right. So rifles will shoot um, like a Napoleonic uh, English rifleman was supposed to be able to land hits at like 200, 250 yards. Uh, as opposed to the like forty to fifty for his brown best toting uh, compatriots, right? Right. So they were substantially more accurate. They had substantially more range. Um, the problem with them was that they were very slow. In order for the bullet to fit the rifling, that means that the bullet has to be as big as it possibly can while it still can go down the barrel, mm-hmm. and that means you have to force that thing in. Uh, right. Like it wasn't uncommon for riflemen to have a mallet. So you would seat the bullet at the top of the barrel and you would hammer it until it fit in. And then you would like, uh, there's accounts of diaries and stuff of people like chewing on the lead bullets to like get them to fit. Jeez. In hindsight, not a great idea. Well, yeah, I don't know when we understood lead poisoning was a thing, but (laughs) I suppose whatever you got to do, right? Right. Uh, So the problem was that rifles were very accurate and they were good weapons, but they were so slow firing that like oftentimes in um, the colonies, for example, in the American Revolution, uh, American riflemen, if they had to engage in open terrain, they would just get overrun because the British would just charge through. You get Mm -hmm. like one volley and that wasn't enough. Uh, This was the reason that Napoleon, for example, refused to have rifles in his army uh, because they had less firepower. So the solution to that came from a uh, Frenchman. Uh, it was what's called the mini ball. And essentially, it's a bullet with a sort of uh, concave, like a hollow bottom. Mm-hmm. And it is smaller than the barrel. When the powder charge goes off, the blast expands the bottom of it. It pushes it out so it'll fit the rifling. So you can reload at the same speed, but when you fire it, it has the accuracy of a rifle, or close enough anyway. Mm -hmm. So now suddenly you have a weapon that can still fire two or three shots a minute. Um, It's more reliable because we have the percussion caps. And now we can land accurate shots out to two to three hundred yards if your soldier of the time can shoot that well, which is not always the case. Mm -hmm. It's still this big, like, 12, 13 millimeter ball that'll mess you up um, and that's the kind of weapon that uh the american civil war this is basically the standard weapon on both sides now, a lot of times you'll see them referred to as a rifled musket or rifle musket um and especially like this is the time where like sharpshooters really start becoming a thing because any soldier who grew up like hunting or shooting varmints on the farm you know give him one of these and he could pick off a confederate officer at, you know 300 paces Mm-hmm. So suddenly, like that, kind of changes the nature of warfare. Um, large scale, like infantry combat, is still kind of at close range and close ranks, because uh, the you know if you're just gathering up a bunch of conscripts from Kentucky or New York, they're not really going to be any better at shooting than uh, than anyone else is. Well, that lends itself to the notorious gruesomeness of, of that conflict, mm-hmm. right? the staggering casualty rate for the time. Yeah, uh, especially um, if you can shoot accurately, even at just a double range from a Napoleonic musket, you're shooting at 100 yards, right? So right. as when you're starting to come into range, if you're moving up a hill to like assault a position, you're already taking a mm-hmm. volley. 
that's pretty accurate. And you probably take another couple as you're going on. So we start seeing like the switch, like offensive tactics become really bloody. You can still win an assault, but it tends to be costly because you're taking fire further out than you were before. And yeah. that fire tends to be more accurate. Um, the accuracy, again, gets lost a little bit because when your soldier is some New York kid who hasn't eaten in three days and has dysentery and is, you know, like he's not going to be that effective anyway. Right, right. But, you know, so we see things like, you know, Pickett's Charge where like the whole Confederate army just gets shot to pieces as they're advancing, you know, across um, across the well, field. The, sure. I mean, all their... their strategy and I guess strategic manuals are based off 17th century and 18th century tactics. So that yeah, like the, they would, the technology they would is ahead of like where the people are at. Yeah. Like they would have studied like Napoleonic tactics, you know, and people start yeah. adopting to it. You see like uh, the close, like shoulder by shoulder ranks start kind of thinning out a mm. lot of diaries and stuff. We'll talk about like once you're in a firefight, the unit kind of like ceases to be a unit. It's just a bunch of men, like kind of like scattering out as much as they can. They kind of aiming and firing individually. Mm -hmm. uh, so you start seeing that happen in response to this like hellish firepower, right? It has to. So, um, and around the same time, so this is one of the cases we associate like in nowadays, you know, like America is like the place for firearms, uh, but that wasn't always the case. Um, at the same time, the Americans are busy shooting each other on a massive scale uh, with these mini balls, which are still muscle loaders, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, the Prussians and the French have uh, picked up what the next step is. And the next step is, of course, a breech loader. A breech loader means it's loaded from the rear of the gun. Right. So with a cartridge. And a lot of like early cartridges are often like uh, canvas or paper. Because um, making like really good like metallic cartridges is difficult. It's very mm -hmm. fine like machining you need. Uh, but in the um, 1864, when the Prussians and the Danes go to war, uh, the Danes are still armed with muzzle loading like mini ball type of rifles. Mm -hmm. uh, the Prussians go into with the fairly famous the Dreisen needle gun, uh, which is a breech loader. You can essentially load and fire like as quickly as you you know, can go through the motions. You could easily yeah. get like five or six shots a minute. So they're shooting two or three times fast. They can fire from cover. They can fire lying prone, even though that's discouraged. Uh, it's far more, you know, you don't have to stand up. It's very difficult to reload a muscle loader lying prone. Mm -hmm. uh, usually you stand up, you know, because you got to like get your uh, ramrod and you got to pull it down the barrel and everything. So right. the Prussians can fire like really quickly. They can fire like, you know, crouching, behind a rock or behind a fence they can fire and reload without getting up from the crouch it's a massive uh, massive advantage they will fight the austrians two years later which will put them in the same situation uh, mm -hmm. and these needle guns aren't like they have issues with you know like these are early essentially modern rifles uh so they have issues with you know like they wear out over time like the gas seal uh wears down pretty quickly so you know like they have plenty of issues they're not accurate beyond you know two three hundred yards like the austrians can outrange them but once you're in range you're get just get mown down by this like rapid fire um mm -hmm. the prussians even have a military command for it schnellfeuer which is this rapid fire where every soldier will just load and fire as quickly as he can um and it's like grinds down like the austrian battalions in front of them mm -hmm. just can't stand up to this level of fire um and this is really like the first sort of 
the step towards like the modern rifle, the breech loader, right? Now you mm-hmm. can, but because it's combined with Prussian, like very aggressive infantry tactics, it's not, qu- nobody like quite keys in that this is like the game changer yet. Because the force that is inevitably on the attack and on the move uh, is also the one that has this firepower advantage. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure those pa- paper cartridges could be a real pain in, pain in the butt, especially with, like jams. Yeah, so like anytime you get near, you know, like mud or water, this is why like firing from prone is such a concern. Because if your mm-hmm. cartridge pouch is like soaked through, like your <laughs> all of your ammo is is done, done right. Yeah, and I would imagine like handling this kind of roughly would probably also be an issue. Like they would have to be, and these weapons can't be manually loaded. Like with an old school musket, you can take like a horn of powder or like a fistful of it and pour it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't do that with a uh, breech loader. Like it has to be, you, you have to have your cartridge ammunition. Yeah. Um, now, 1870 is the Franco-Prussian War. The French and the Prussians decide to have it out, as they do every 17 years or so. <laughs> uh, but this time, the Prussians go up against somebody who has been paying attention to the rifle um, development. And the French will lose the war for a number of failings in the military. Uh, but small arms was not one of them. The Chapeau rifle is also a breech loader. It's a very similar concept. Uh, but it outranges the Prussian musket or uh, rifle effectively like two to one in range. And oh, the French have a tendency of what they call battalion fire, where like an entire battalion will fire, you know, essentially like arcing their shots. Right. So the typical battle will be like the Prussians, like a solid column moving up, getting shot to pieces by long range French fire, falling back, waiting for the artillery to show up and then shoot the French to pieces because the Prussians have the advantage in artillery. Mm. Uh, but this is the first time, and this is only six years after the end of the, or five years after the end of the American Civil War, where both sides are fighting with breech-loading, you know, single-shot rifles, yeah, but they're both breech-loaders. They both have this rate of fire, which means um, infantry firefights become extremely brutal, extremely bloody. Right. Uh, you, you still have all the old problems of, like, powder obscuring everything, but even then, if you're firing, like, five or six shots in a minute into that smoke... You know, like infantry assaults become extremely bloody. You see, like all these stories of you know, like the Prussians trying to take a bridge, or the French trying to recapture something, and they just get like advance up, get shot to pieces, and fall back. You know, like a really small group of men can hold like the rubble of a building that's been shelled mm-hmm. and can fight off like a much larger, uh, much larger force. Right? That would have been one heck of a shock, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. That that they must have <clears throat> taken account of that and had to like. Well, I mean, they did. That's the the tragedy. You're, you're in a f- full-on war, so you can't. If you withdraw to like totally, there is no withdraw. Re-assault. Yeah, like whatever you There's go no, in like, with. Time out. <laughs> right, like whatever you go in with, that's what you got. You know, like you got to make sure. it make it work. Uh, but afterwards, everyone started like, kind of like paying attention to it. Um, and the conclusion at the time was that um, because infantry assaults were so costly. The lesson was that in order to succeed at all, they had to be extremely fast. Your troops had to be able to advance very quickly. And they had to be extremely disciplined because they will take heavy losses going in. But if the assault succeeds and you break the enemy army, it's less blood long term than having this like prolonged like firefight. Sure. Uh, 
so and hold that thought because that'll be important in uh oh 40 years or so for these uh, guys right well it's just amazing how quickly all this evolved and like mm -hmm. being an officer and being responsible for these troops and you know yeah oh, yeah like, every like... few years this new <laughs> weapon comes up and you see its potential and you're not sure like how is this going to play out in the field right like how who can actually predict how all this goes, right? You yeah. know, the way you, you know, if you're a veteran of Napoleonic Wars, you might still be, you know, you if you have a career, you're still in service 40 years later, but now everything is different. Man. <laughs> so as things speed up more, um, you know, the French in particular are well motivated to, like, get the next step. They sure. obviously understood the importance of being ahead in the technological curve. And they were also smarting for revenge, right? They had lost the war against the hated Germans, and everyone knew it was going to come around again. Right. And they finally... So one of the issues, because uh, repeating firearms, you know, like the famous like Winchester, like cowboy guns? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had been around, but black powder is very poorly suited to that kind of thing, both because of the fouling um, and because the cartridge technology, you know, again, hadn't been kind of there. So when you get stuff like the cowboy rifles, they tend to be very small caliber. Uh, and black powder isn't very efficient. So a small caliber bullet isn't going to be all that. Like, you're not going to reach out and hit somebody at long range. And black powder has a lot of limitations on what you can really do. Uh, so cartridge, repeating cartridge weapons had kind of been this elusive thing. Everybody, everybody understood, you know, the ability to fire off multiple shots was going to be a big deal. Right, uh, but you have to like get all the technological pieces to add up, and nobody can quite nail it in a way that's like soldier-proof and effective and cheap. Mm -hmm. And the French eventually, around like the 1880s or so, come up with smokeless gunpowder. So again, we're only talking like 10, maybe 15 years from the last like big step, right? Mm -hmm. And smokeless powder, while it's not actually smokeless, it produces a lot less smoke, which means you can fire repeatedly without losing your sight. That will be important for machine guns. You know, the Gatling gun is a yeah. cool invention, but you can't see anything after the first five shots. Um, being able to mechanically push out rounds and keep on target, and that'll be relevant at this point in about 35 years or so. <laughs> um, smokeless powder uh, allows you, it has far more power. Uh, so your shot can be much lower caliber and be project out at a very flat arc or a very long range. Like, it pretty much mm -hmm. doubles the range of firearms. Um, and it improves the accuracy dramatically. Black powder weapons, because they're low velocity, like, uh, the shot will drop off pretty quick. Sure. So you can shoot at a very flat angle. You can keep aim carefully. Uh, firing from cover is much more effective because you can... It's much harder to see where the shots are coming from. You don't have these, like, telltale, you know, cotton puffs, right? Yeah. <laughs> um... So this basically changes everything. Uh, with lower ammunition, you can like half the caliber and thus half the weight of your ammunition. You can carry much more of it. Hmm. And that means that you can create modern repeating rifles. And the French are sitting on this. And they start putting a rifle together like immediately. Like this is going to change everything overnight. The problem is that when you're the first to do something, this is like any like computer technology. Whoever comes up with the idea first is never the one that becomes famous for it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the MP3 player versus iPod story. Yeah. Yep. Um, so they put together the LaBelle rifle, which is the most modern rifle in the world at the time. It uses new gunpowder. It can shoot rapidly. It's a bolt action. Uh, so it has, you know, that kind of mechanism. You can knock out, like, 
six, seven, eight shots in a minute, no problem. It's accurate out to absurd ranges. It's powerful. Um, it's an excellent weapon. It's reliable. Um, it holds eight shots, which again, we're going from like a single shot rifle to like eight shots, right? Yeah, sure. A couple of shots per minute to eight. That's yeah, it's ridiculous. a huge, it's a crazy advantage. The downside is because they're first, they don't really, so they got to do something with the magazine. And what they adopt is what a lot of like, um, you know, shotguns, like Western guns use, which is a tube underneath the barrel. So you got to load mm-hmm. each shot one at a time, which isn't a problem if you're used to loading each shot anyway. You know, right. just lo- load up eight and you're ready to go. The problem is that when everyone else gets wind of this, this basically makes every gun in Europe like obsolete overnight. Everyone drops their weapons and start adopting um, or creating their own smokeless powder and creating their own weapons for it. Um, but everyone else has the advantage of figuring out like a better solution to this. Because the French were so busy getting into service. So you get like the modern stripper clip, which is like a little metal piece that holds usually five bullets together. Right. And you hold it, you know, you basically like push them in with your thumb and then throw away the clip. Uh, or you get the Mondlicher style, like, end block clip, which is like a little metal holder with five shots, and the whole thing just goes into the gun. Right. Uh, so both of those allow you to reload, like, five shots like that, and then you're ready to shoot. Whereas the poor Frenchman, like, literally, this is a case where, like, you go from having the most advanced gun in the world to being outdated in, like, three years. Because <laughs> so as soon as, like... production goes to nothing. Yeah, basically, like, the... The Lebel will soldier on into the First World War, uh, but they will, you know, like having this slow reload time, like the extra three shots of the magazine compared to like a five shot Mauser doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the slow reload time does. So they end up having to go back and like start adopting so they can also have a uh, stripper clip feed. Yeah. Um, and these are the weapons when we look at like the Balkan Wars, or, like, I don't know, like 1912 or so, like the Boer War in um, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spanish-American War, the Spanish troops armed with Mausers, which leave quite an impression on, on American soldiers, many of which are still carrying single shots. Yeah. Um, the Russo-Japanese War in like 04, 1904 or 1905. Like, these wars are all fought with these weapons. These are just like, for the time, like modern state-of-the-art weapons, and they are so cheap that every single nation can afford them. Like, there's nobody who, like, stays behind this because the technology isn't that expensive. It's not that complicated. Uh, But it's such a huge step of inaccuracy and firepower over anything that had existed before. So going into World War I, like, if you watch, you know, like, uh, movies like 1917 or something, that's basically the kind of rifle you see. These, like, uh, stripper-clip-fed bolt actions. Very reliable, extremely accurate. Um... You know, excellent firepower for their time. Um, and they will basically form like the standard infantry weapon for like 50 years of warfare. You know, mm-hmm. like by the end of World War II, these are still the standard weapon of most armies in the world. Um, and it becomes, even without factoring like machine guns or artillery, like it becomes very easy to see like how the like slaughter of the First World War could happen because there's mm-hmm. no way of like advancing in the open against troops with these weapons. But again, you're they're working off these like tactical and strategic traditions going back a couple hundred years that mm-hmm. are not suited all at all for the technology they're working with, and that's the great tragedy, of course, of World War One. Yeah, like 
So there were kind of like two lessons that had been drawn throughout the middle of the 1800s. The American lesson was that since a frontal attack is so devastating, you should try to like outflank the enemy strategically. If you can outmaneuver his position, then he's going to have to abandon it and you can fight on more advantageous ground, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense in America, which is like huge. Uh, right. In Europe, that's not an option. You can't just like roll through like the Belgian border, right? <laughs> sure. Unless you're Germany. Um, but, you know, these massive outflanking moves just aren't possible because that's not the kind of battlefields you're fighting on. So their lesson, like I said, is that you have to concentrate the infantry assault on, like, this narrow point as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but the move from single shot to these magazine-loading rifles is the thing that just tips the defensive firepower. You sure. know, these tactics... Uh, like very aggressive assault tactics work up until a certain point. And when the firepower tips over, they don't work anymore. Now mm -hmm. you just got to be shot to pieces. And now everyone has to go back to square one to figure out like what the next answer is. You know, we see this far beyond like this episode, you know, we see tanks, artillery tactics. And, right. Right. You know, modern infantry stuff. Um, right. And to me, I don't know. To me, this is like once we step beyond this level of firepower, I think it, we're delving into stuff that's a lot more publicly common knowledge. Yeah, like, once you're um, up in, like, the World War II era, you're looking at, you know, like, anyone can grab a copy of, like, What Eagles Dare, and, or, you yeah. know. Like, that stuff was Saving Private Ryan, which has plenty of, like, gun porn in here. So, by that point, you know, <laughs> that's pretty readily available. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so this is kind of like the, like, the arc of, um, like, firearms technology, and, you know, just this perpetual, um, grind towards like greater accuracy greater rate of fire greater reliability right sure um sure. but what's really like notable i think is you kind of mentioned this that you know like when matchlocks show up and they're kind of the hot thing literally um you know they stick around for a good like two or three hundred years uh flintlocks and you know percussion cap like smoothbore muskets stick around for a good like 200 years and then things start picking up like once you're in the middle of the 1800s we go from like muscle-loaded rifles in 1850 to, by 1900, 50 years later, you have, like, magazine-fed, like, bolt actions. Yeah. Like, suddenly, like, you could literally, like, you know, like, 10 years after you have learned to shoot a rifle, it's no longer in use. Or it's relegated to, like, third-rank research, because this is outdated. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so the speed of technological change, like, picks up, like, uh, really dramatically. And that's something that's like hard to, you know, it's easy to f for us to look back and say, oh, you know, they should have figured this out. But like, there's almost no way you can. You can't form like a military doctrine around a weapon you don't know how it functions in the battlefield. You know, like you just have to get those experiences. Like, Sure, sure. Well, I, I mean, that's a basic doctrine of, of any sort of conflict. Like we all have our theory. Mm. Like what it, it boils down to what Mike Tyson said. <laughs> like everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. It's the same. Right. Experience. I was yeah. hoping this wasn't going to be the Mike Tyson quote about fornicating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's true. You know, like you have to, um, you have to test these things out and you have to see them fail on a large scale yeah. before you yeah. can. And like you said, like you can't just like pull all your dudes out and retrain them. You know, like right. if, if what we're doing right now is getting us killed, well, you have to write the new doctrine. You have to 
have smart people figure out if this is going to work, you have to then push it out and start training up soldiers, which is a nine-month process usually. Sure, sure. And in the meantime, you have to do something to hold the line with what you have. Right, you know, you got to just make the most of it. So, you know, like you can do improvisations on the local level, you know. This or that commander comes up with a better way of doing things. But, like, it's easy to forget, like, we're talking, by the time we're talking, like, 1914, we're talking about millions and millions of men. Right. You know, marching off to battle. Um, and there's just no way of, like, propagating changes these that quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it becomes this, you know, like, massive amount of inertia um, that just applies to everything. Sure. And of course, I think maybe the the final add-on piece would be, I think, around World War II, they start getting smaller units that are trained more to improvise and aren't so, like, reliant on the command structure. Yeah, um, because eventually the realization is that the, like, tight drill and command structure can only go so far. Sure. You know... Um, just as an example of the like escalation size, I want to plot some numbers here. Um, so the Battle of Waterloo, when it took place in 1815, the last battle of Napoleon, right? Right. Um, and which, as the time was, I don't think it's the biggest battle of the Napoleonic Wars. I think it's like third. I might be wrong. It's uh, it's one of the biggest, um, and it features about 73,000 French against a combined Allied force of 118,000 men between Jeez. Wellington's army and the Prussians. So we're talking about a little under 200,000 men in total, right? Right. All, like, slugging it out in this, like, one place. Uh, By comparison, the first Battle of the Marne in the First World War features just under a million Germans alone slugging it out with slightly over a million French and British. Jeez. So that is two, a million men uh, slugging it out. Um, And likewise, uh, the Battle of Waterloo lasts for uh, an entire day from pretty early in the day until it gets dark. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Battle of the Marne is six days of just brutalizing each other in the mud somewhere in France. It's like, just hard to conceptualize. It is, you know, like that's like how many people live in your state, you know? Sure. <laughs> right. We're going to line all of them up <laughs> and shoot at each other. Right. Like it's hard to even understand how that could. Uh... Okay. So, I looked up, Oregon has a population of 4 million. So if you take half of Oregon's population and, like, send them off to, like, some river in France to, like, shoot each other. Like, the German death toll for the Battle of the Marne was about 250,000 casualties, so dead and wounded. That is more casualties than uh, the combined armies of both sides at Waterloo. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, like, the scale of industrialized warfare is uh, difficult to comprehend. I think that's important to understand when we kind of talk about these things. Mm-hmm. That is just, you know, there's a reason things didn't change very quickly. Like, the fact that in a couple of years, everyone will start kind of keying into, like, modern tactics and these things is honestly, like, kind of astounding in in hindsight of it. Well, could you imagine being one of those commanding officers... And, like, getting the reports back, like, it's, like, you're, that would weigh so heavily on a human being. It's just Oh, absolutely. Um, like, if you screw that up, like, imagine being a French officer in, like, World War One or World War Two, mm-hmm. and you're doing your best. Like, yeah. this is what you have, and you get totally walloped 
Yeah, yeah, you, it you would be yeah, it sucker would be punched, stunning. You know, like that these capabilities even exist. Like you know, like everyone understood it on paper. Yeah, but seeing it actually happen, you know, it's yeah, it's a completely different, um, if completely different beast. So yeah, right. like the people who had to learn this and adapt to it in the field, while every single decision you make account for like thousands of dudes getting killed. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a, a mass amount of pressure. It's probably no coincidence a lot of them drank pretty heavily. Right, right. You know, like in the Civil War, like Grant, I, I think both Grant and Sherman were uh, kind of renowned for drinking. I might be wrong. It's one of one of them. Yeah, but um, you know, like <laughs> we associate like a Civil War general with like uh, definitely being boozed up. Grim business. It's grim so, business. Yeah, no yeah. other choice. You know, someone's got to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the the broad arc of like firearms over the years. Over the yeah, his, so what I guess history like of shooting dudes, right? So yeah. then how can we kind of put this together for gaming? Then what are I guess what are our final takeaways? Yeah, I think the final takeaways is the understanding that like weapons technology all, never exists in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, if something is available to one, this is something I think a lot of game worlds kind of mess up is the idea that only like these people have guns or only these people have this weapon. And that would never be the case. Like as soon as somebody is exposed to a superior technology, it'll spread. Yeah, well, I guess that's why I wanted to bring up like the Pashtuns mm-hmm. and like the Chinese stuff. Like, yeah, it's not just we it's so easy for us to get caught up with it as like Europe uh you know pike and shot or like black yeah um but you know people around the world weren't like they were as smart and industrious uh they they had the same issues we would like to kill that dude but he's pretty far away (laughs) (laughs) you know like that's the universal problem right yeah i'm tired of risking getting stabbed or having my skull smashed so yeah like when all these mongol dudes come in with swords those swords are pretty sharp so we're gonna we're gonna do it differently right you know um (laughs) But yeah, like technology spreads. The more connected cultures are, the closer they are together, the faster it will spread, right? Yeah. Um, That's important. If your game world is really small, there's really no such thing. Like once something shows up somewhere, it's going to spread quickly. And much to the dismay of people who like to paint miniatures, uh, armies tend to be extremely uniform and dull looking. Yeah, like unless you have a good reason to have like a bunch of different dudes with different weapons, for the most part, you only really want like two weapons. You know, you want some dudes who can fight hand to hand. You want some dudes who can shoot. Mm-hmm. And if you can make one dude do both, we're just gonna have one dude. So you're not really gonna have this like look of like a hundred dudes all carrying like different weapons. We're just gonna have a hundred dudes who all have the same thing churned out by some workshop somewhere. Uh, because, because that's what's actually effective and people who fight for a living usually want to continue fighting for a living which means they got to continue living sure. so they're going to do the uh, pragmatic thing you know all the samurai picked up muskets all the native americans picked up muskets all the uh, arabs picked up muskets even though they all kept their swords or tomahawks or whatever uh, but you know like as soon well, I mean, as better technology shows up that uh I mean, you can play interesting things like this type of rifle has this limitation. So Mm -hmm. this other group might not pick it up or they might have a different strategy with like pikemen or just cannons or something that they're using in a certain period. So you could play off that. Yeah. Or like, you know, you have a culture that lives like deep in the jungle where it's wet and 
murky. So firearms really aren't, they're more like a curiosity for them. Yeah. You know, like the chieftain will want one because it's cool and expensive. And uh, But if you're out in, you know, knee deep in the water and the swamps, it's not really going to help you that much. They have mm-hmm. reasons to, to stick to their thing. Or, you know, like you have magic, but the magic spell only works in arrows, I guess. <laughs> you know, like, so you can still have some differentiation, you know, like, um, you know, by the time of World War One, there's still like uh, people around the world who still have like black powder weapons. There are plenty of them around. Uh, but you got to like put some thought into like, why did these people like stay out of the arms race? Did they did they have like you know, reasons of culture to do it? Did they have reasons of economy? Was there mm-hmm. specific circumstance that made it not that relevant to them? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, it's like the Zulus versus the British that we've talked about before. You know, the yeah. Zulus still picked up some rifles, although they didn't have them in, like, you know, they didn't produce them themselves that I know of. So, you know, they were in a situation where they had to make do with one style of fighting. But even then, they still, like, grab whatever they could get their hands on. Totally. Totally, of course. If they could have like a specialized smaller group that could sit on a another hillside and provide some covering fire and distract yeah. some of the British line, then yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, like none of the like those guys weren't stupid. When they saw like you know people being ripped to stretch by like Martini Henry rifles, they're gonna pick those up after the battle, along with any leftover ammunition, right? Dang straight, yeah. So, yeah, like, I guess the lesson here, other than just envisioning, like, kind of how this has all changed over the years, is, like, think carefully about, like, how technology spreads in the world uh, and how it interacts with people and how it interacts with, like, thought. You know, like, a lot of times, whatever the best weapon is, is not the weapon everyone is, like, understands real well to use either. Mm -hmm. But it takes a while, and sometimes it takes, like, you know, whoever goes first isn't usually the one who gets it right. Yeah. So, you know, it would be interesting to have a campaign where, like, a new weapon has just been discovered. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can, like, a lot of this can be taken as analogies for, like, magic stuff. If you want a game that doesn't have fire, like, black powder weapons, but you want, like, lightning lances or something, that's cool. But it's still going to follow, I think, like, pretty similar. If it can be produced widely and is fairly effective and doesn't require, you know, massive amounts of money to field, then people are going to figure out a way of giving it to 200 dudes and go shoot at the other dudes. Yeah, totally. But I would say if it's a new technology thing, you want to put some pretty strict limitations like high failure rates or they have like if it's a magical thing, they have a low number of charges. Mm-hmm. Um, they could maybe backfire on the sol- the troopers using them like stuff like that would be right. Cool. Or they have like, you know, like because they're divinely empowered, they can't be used on Thursdays because that's <laughs> a whole day for our God. Right, right, right. Be- better hope that's not the day the barbarians come rolling in. You know it is, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's a time-honored tradition in history of attacking on the enemy's holy days, just to be a jerk. <laughs> so, you know. Um, but yeah, like, just put thought into these, like, uh, questions. Like, again, the point of understanding history, like, when you're making a campaign, isn't always to run a historical game, although it can be. Um, but it's to understand, like, how... If you want your world to feel like conceptual, like it fits together and makes sense, you know, if you understand how these things happen in real life, it'll help you sort of backfill it and put all the pieces together. Definitely. You know, otherwise, a lot of times you get that feeling where it's like it feels like it doesn't quite make sense, but you can't put your finger on it. 
Right. You know, um, and I think like just understanding these things, you know, reading up on how these, you know, weapons technology has spread and picked up, uh, I think helps a lot to like put these things into context so that if you don't want it to be that way, you can start thinking about like, okay, if I don't want this new weapon to show up everywhere, why would that be? Right. You know, like it's tightly controlled or it's very expensive or whatever. Like a lot of times, like, I know, like old D&D books would just say like, oh, you know, like um, gunpowder just doesn't work. Like for whatever reason, it's not a thing, <laughs> which has always felt like really lame. Um, GURPS Bainstorm had a thing where um, gunpowder totally works, uh, but the only people who know the formula are the Wizards Guild, and they will hunt down people who figure it out because uh, the, they know that the moment that gunpowder becomes common, nobody needs the Wizards anymore. Uh, <laughs> so they keep nice. like, it's like a trade secret, right? Which is a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, conversely, like I've always wanted to just run a fantasy game that was straight up just fantasy, but you have like three Musketeers era, like muskets and swords, you know, <laughs> fancy hats with the big feathers and stuff. But you still have like elves and dwarves and shit. Interesting. <laughs> it might not work. I think it would work better as like a gothic, like monster hunter thing. You can kind of do the Bloodborne vibe. Nice. But yeah, um, I think that's kind of all I had. Um, that was a little bit of a history lesson, I suppose. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. But I think so, it works. So, yeah. Um, so if, um, yeah, I guess we'll see if uh, we do another one of these. We kind of covered like hand-to-hand implements and shooting implements. Uh, so I think, you know, like there's a lot of this stuff like artillery and tanks that aren't super interesting to like a RPG perspective. Right. You know, if you want to talk about like uh, more war gaming kind of stuff, that would probably be relevant. But that might be a little bit off topic at the moment. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, you know, if people want to uh, let us know how they like this, um, if they want to see more of this kind of stuff, or if they want to go back to uh, talking about all this uh, story stuff that people keep insisting on putting in our games, <laughs> I'm a fan of it. Yeah, I like my you stories. Know. <laughs> but yeah that's i think um all we got for the evening yeah yep. and as always uh we appreciate everyone checking in with us and giving us some of their time and we hope you have a good week yeah you know uh we appreciate every uh, time you listen to it if you want to tell your friends about it or if you just want to play it on both your phone your tv your computer and your uh tape recorder at the same time so it counts as four clicks instead of one because that's how you win at a podcast, right? Uh, yeah, the modern internet. <laughs> Just download Ancient. it directly to your Sony Walkman. I hear those. <laughs> that works pretty well. Get it right on that tape. <laughs> <laughs>